0: Two girls, one ghost. Two girls, one ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina. And here we are. It's almost Halloween. It's almost Halloween, which normally I'd get really excited, but suddenly I got really anxious about it because I'm like, oh my God, it's almost over. I know. I also was only supposed to stay until the 29th of October, but now I'm staying one more day because we added a day of filming. And so I leave the 30th. So I, I'm back on Halloween. Halloween. And so now I'm like, what do I do for Halloween?
1: Yeah. When does it get to the point where on actual Halloween? Well, I guess it depends on where you live. I was going to say, when do you hand out candy? I've never gotten to do that in my adult life. On because Halloween. I've always lived in apartments. Yeah. To stand outside on the stoop. Yeah. I did do it one year when I lived in a house and the owners of the house came over and we all sat out. On the That's steps fun. and handed out candy. But there were like five kids that went by. That was it.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I don't get that either because I have an apartment. And I feel like in L.A. they pick certain neighborhoods, schools do, and they're like, this is the neighborhood that everyone's going trick-or-treating in this year.
1: Yeah, and oftentimes now they don't actually do the trick-or-treating on actual Halloween. I feel like there's a lot of what? neighborhoods and towns that schedule it based on either weather or just like for little kids, they might have a different trick-or-treating period or time like from two to four all of the little kids are going out
0: i need someone to explain this to me because halloween is on october 31st and that's when it should be celebrated i need i can't wrap my head around that
1: i don't actually know why they do it differently i should look into that i just know
0: towns have like designated days and times. maybe sometimes. if it's like the weekend and it's just easier to do on the weekend than in the middle of the week i don't know maybe i'm not sure
1: Look in your local newspaper for your Halloween festivities. Or just walk around on October 31st. I'm stoked to walk through Beacon Hill again, the neighborhood I live in in Boston, because what is it called? Lewisburg Square? Something like that. I don't know. It's where all the really rich people live. Mm -hmm. And they, I told you about it last year, that they, well, they close off the street so that all of the kids can walk around. There's... It's basically just, like, a whole few blocks get turned into this pedestrian Halloween trick-or-treating area. But this one square where where all rich people are, (laughs) they deck out their houses for Halloween. And I told you last year about the house that was, like, a pirate ship and there was an octopus, like, tentacles coming out. And these are, like, four-story homes. Like, it, it was intense. It wasn't just, like, the window on the first floor were decorated. It was the entire place was getting well because remember
0: i was there the weekend before and we did walk around and we saw a bunch of the houses and then multiple people were talking about the pirate ship house and we couldn't find it yeah we couldn't
1: find it well i'll walk over this here, and i will you let you know take pictures i'll put it on two girls One ghost instagram story please do now there's a lot of pressure on those people maybe they listen if they don't i'll just leave a note on there i'm
0: sure they do it <laughs> every year I accidentally posted my personal stuff on the two girls, one ghost Instagram this week and then posted a two girls, one ghost Instagram post on my personal Instagram, both on the same day. And I was like, whoops, (laughs) because I posted, I think it was the, it was an Instagram post. It was some meme I posted on my personal account and I started seeing like people liking it that I know for a fact, don't listen to the podcast. And so I was so confused. I was like, why did all of a sudden all of my personal friends start following the podcast? It's a spooky meme. Yeah, it was a spooky meme. I can't remember which one it was. And then I posted my view from my office in our Instagram story.
1: At my office, the CEO is trying to get me real hyped up and and talking about having a Halloween party. And he wants me to encourage everyone to dress up and (sighs) to go out on Halloween. And I was like, don't. Tell me this unless you're very serious, because if you tell me to dress up and come in and no one else does, it's not going to be pretty because the costume isn't going to be half ass where I can just be like, oh, <laughs> it'll be like when Pam in the office goes and she's Charlie Chaplin.
0: Yes, it'll be like that. Amazing. So, yeah, so I'll be my first day back is the 31st. And so I I think I'm 100% going to do Voldemort. And so the first day, all my coworkers haven't seen me in three and a half weeks. I'm going to come back to work dressed as Voldemort.
1: You have to. I've told so many people
0: you're going to be a Voldemort this year. (laughs) Okay, well, I made my mind when I went to go see Cursed Child this past weekend, which is, I told you I'd be a changed person. And it's true. Tell me about it. So it was... So they split
1: up the play into two parts, so Mm -hmm. you have to go to both, or can you pick and choose to go to one or the other?
0: Uh, You should go to both, but there are some people who would go to just one, I I guess, because you can buy tickets for each separately, but then it's you're missing a huge chunk of it. You're missing three hours of a show. So
1: why do they do it separately? Why isn't it just like one big mega show?
0: Because then it would be six hours of sitting in a theater, which is just a long time. Cause it's a really long, it's based on, so they wrote the play and I read it. It's The Cursed Child and it's a pretty big play, which would be impossible to do, I think, in a one, three hour block. No, well, 100% is difficult to do because they do it in two, three hour blocks. So, but it's amazing. Like I don't, I've never done that before. But I couldn't imagine them having condensed it into just one block. So how I'm glad true they did it to into... the movies or books is the play? It has nothing. Well, I mean, it has stuff to do with it, but it's a completely new story. It's about oh. Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Ginny's kids. The concept is that Albus Severus, which is Harry and Ginny's second child. He is going to Hogwarts and he gets placed in Slytherin and then he becomes best friends with Malfoy's son, Severus. Oh, Oh, I know. Okay. Scorpius. His name's Scorpius. And they become best friends and then they go on all these adventures and then it's kind of like a father-son story of Harry and, and Albus kind of butt heads and they don't totally get each other. And Albus, who grows up as Harry Potter's son, has this like kind of dark cloud over him of, you know, when your parent is famous, how do you become your own person? And everyone expects you to be something that you might not necessarily be. And so he's trying to like discover who he is on his own. I won't give away too much, but basically it's like a a story of discovery, self-discovery, and then like father and son coming together and loving each other. But it's really cool because what it does is it takes the stories from the original series, from the first seven books, and it brings those into it. So, For example, well, it's a lot about how Cedric Diggory died during the Triwizard Tournament. And so they have to do all this time traveling. They time travel back to the Triwizard Tournament and they see Harry, Hermione and Ron and they're trying to change the timelines. And then it's like, does Voldemort going to come back? And there's all this like magic that happens. And the production value was insane. They made the whole stage look like it was shaking. And they perform magic. They had like a whole duel. So like fire was coming out. They were swimming underwater. There was a pool in the stage. What? It was
1: crazy. Holy crap. I need to see this question. Let's make a wild assumption Mm -hmm. that there's someone out there that maybe has no idea what Harry Potter is. Doesn't even get the premise of it. Has never heard it. Do they do enough backstory in explaining harry potter for someone who just walks off the street and has never ever read the back cover of harry potter to understand who these people are or do you have to go in really understanding or having read or seen all of the harry potter books slash movies
0: i'm sure it could stand alone people would be confused for sure because they reference a lot of things that you would only know if you read the first seven books but I think they do a good job of explaining while the show is going on. And in the playbill, they have little brief summaries of what each book is about. And then it has like key terms that you should know and what they are. But I wouldn't recommend someone to go to it if they hadn't read. And also like, who are you? Reveal yourself to me.
1: Reveal yourself. Well, <laughs> I wasn't sure because, you know, I mean, every other Broadway show like Lion King, Mean Girls, Beetlejuice, you don't need to have seen the movie.
0: Right. Right. But this is such a big
1: series. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not attacking yeah. Harry
0: Potter, don't worry. I know. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I was if, just you know, wondering Just me more, like, I get very strongly passionate
1: about it. <laughs> I was just wondering how they tackled that. Yeah. To be a Broadway play.
0: It's really incredible. And the way that they even removing the the props and t- and stuff from the stage Is magical they have this phone booth where people just disappear through it and they did the whole polyjuice potion thing on stage and people changed into other people in front of your eyes and it was so cool this is unbelievable it was so cool wow they should do an additional two hour after the second show where you can pay extra to do like a tour of the set And see how they do all the magic. I
1: want them to make this into a TV special so those of us who maybe (laughs) won't find ourselves in New York or maybe can't afford to go to two of the Broadway shows can watch it. Take a train. Take the train. I know. I was telling my mom today, I was like, I just so wish that there was like a beautiful gondola or something that just... Went from Burlington, Vermont to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is where my grandparents and cousins and aunt and uncle live. It's like So that I don't mm-hmm. have to drive and do that drive. I would just so rather just sit and be able to enjoy the scenery, like a nice gondola. And then as I was talking, I was like, wait a second. That's literally what a train
0: is. Yeah. Except <laughs> <laughs> I did you're grounded train. rather than like hanging from suspended.
1: I was thinking more like foliage season, though. And that's why I was thinking gondola because I'd be like. Like a ski gondola, you
0: know, going over the treetops being like, <laughs> Ew, oh, it's so pretty. Yep. Yeah, the train. The train. That does remind me. I, whenever you are on a train in Europe, it's just the most beautiful views. You're always along the coast and at the water. Not always, I guess, but that's just what it reminds me of.
1: Yeah, I think that f- my favorite train ride I've ever been on was I went from Interlaken, Switzerland. Up to young Frau. Wait, is- I did that too. Yeah, we both did that. You wore, oh, yeah, you the wore shorts, shorts though, because <laughs> you were crazy. And yes. went to the highest peak of the Swiss Alps in all of Europe wearing shorts. Yes. Whoopsie. <sighs> Top of Europe. Top of Europe. I think that's my favorite train ride though, because it's kind of like, I mean, it's a nice train, but you still sort of feel like it's like an old rickety train. and Yeah. You're so slowly creeping up the countryside and seeing all these cottages. Ah! Well. It's
0: beautiful. It is beautiful.
1: It is now October 27th. -hmm. We are just four days shy of our favorite day of the year. Mm -hmm. And on that day of the year, the spirit world and our world, the portals, come the closest to being opened to each other. Which is what I learned on Halloween Town. (laughs) (laughs) Hocus Pocus. But anyway, we thought that this would be an excellent time to incorporate one of our favorite topics. A very Mm -hmm. scary topic that we've revisited multiple times.
0: Many a times.
1: Many a times. And we're talking demons and poltergeists.
0: Demons. Possessions.
1: We're going to have to come up with some weird Latin word to name this episode. I might have one. A Latin word? Yeah. All right. When you ever, here's a drinking game. When you hear the Latin word, drink. <laughs> there
0: are many Latin words in mind, so. Ooh.
1: There are none in mind, so don't worry. You can drink water every time I don't say a Latin word. <laughs> and then we'll all be okay at the end. I was ready to open a beer. You know what? I wish I had wine. Actually, I don't.
0: I had a lot at my grandparents. I'm fine. I had a lot during Harry Potter. Well, in between shows, me, my mom, my brother went to dinner and drank quite a lot of wine. Fun. Okay. Who is first? You are first. I'm first. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was going to try and say I am first backwards because my guy said things backwards quite often. I am Yikes. first. Let's see. ma i. That was right. Yeah. Okay. I'm not possessed, don't worry. But George Lukens was possessed. And his story of possession starts not with him himself, but with the story of the White Witch of Lamb Inn. The White Witch? That's a good witch. Right. It starts with a good witch. But where there is good, there is evil. Yin and yang, baby, we all have to equal out. And where there is evil, there are demons. So it's 1761, and we are in Bristol, England, at the now-demolished Lamb Inn. And the Lamb Inn was owned. The landlord, his name was Richard Giles. He had a wife and two children, Molly, who was 13, and Dobby, who was 8. And they were having these very strange occurrences in there in the Lamb Inn, which they lived in full-time. They were experiencing high quantities of what they believed was supernatural activity. Molly and Dobby were both being attacked night after night as they were asleep they would be constantly awoken by something biting on their arms their necks or pricking them with pins furniture was constantly being thrown about and glasses would rise in the air on their own and then be flung at the girls and their nurse and they couldn't sleep they were terrified Molly's hat was like constantly being plucked off her head and thrown four feet away. There were strange sounds during the night, knocking, drumming, growling, screaming. And everyone in the town was convinced that there was something evil inflicting the lamb in. And everyone knew it. So Giles, who's the landlord, Richard Giles, believed that his family had been cursed by a rival business and that his rival went to the evil witch in town And paid her to end Giles and his family. Their wagons would get stuck in the middle of the road. The voices would speak through their walls in different languages like Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Molly and Dobby were constantly thrown out of bed by this evil spirit. And it was so strong that just like even if three men were holding one of the girls down, they weren't strong enough to hold her down. Basically, this evil spirit would like rip her out of their arms. There were many times where the girls were found on the ceiling of their bedroom, pinned there by an unseen force. And it continued for months, Yikes. months and months. And eventually, Giles's wagon broke down in the middle of the road. And this time, he saw an old woman where the wagon broke down. And he looked at her and he recognized her. It was the evil witch. So he went to her and he tried to talk to her, but she spit vile words at him in a language that he didn't understand. And four days later, he was dead. So now his widowed wife was sure that their family was being cursed by evil, and so she went to the White Witch for protection. And she provided some remedy, and the poltergeist activity ceased in the Lamb Inn. But soon after, the White Witch was found dead. And according to rumors, it is believed that George Lukens lived with this woman, the White Witch, the White Witch of Lamb Inn the woman who was trying to protect the people from the evil witch in and around Bristol, England. And it's believed that the evil witch, after the white witch protected this family at Lamb Inn, went after the white witch directly and killed her. It is believed that when she was killed, George, who had lived with her at the time, was left alone with all of these like, remaining potions and spells. And there are two different versions of the story here. One is, well, three, I guess. There's one that that people believe because he didn't know what he was doing with these spells and the potions that were left behind that perhaps he kind of dabbled in them in an unprotected kind of Mm. he didn't know what he was doing way, which may have caused his possession. A second belief is that the evil witch who attacked the white witch wanted to continue attacking everyone who... Anyone who was involved in the White Witch's life, which would mean George Lukens. And the third theory is that George himself saw these spells and all of this, the incantations laying around, and he decided, maybe I could use it to make some money. That's the belief of people who, like, don't really believe that George was actually possessed, that he made it all up. But if it is that, if it was that, and he was trying to make money, he failed miserably. So I don't believe that that's what happened. But anyways... Now comes George's possession. So the White Witch has died, and George Lukens is living alone. He's a tailor from the town of Yat in England, and he was an active member of society. He contributed in many aspects. He was an avid churchgoer. He performed with the choir, and every Christmas he performed in the Mummer's Play, which I didn't know what it was, but basically it's a traditional play that's performed in England and Northern Ireland, and sometimes still is performed, but... It, it's linked to winter festivals and it kind of is tied to the idea of the new seasons and agriculture and trying to like the way that people would do these rituals to ask for a great season of crops. It's kind of in that same vein. So basically the plot is St. George, who's a gallant Christian hero comes in and fights an infidel knife. And then one of them is killed. And in this play, A doctor arrives and brings the dead warrior back to life. So it's like a reincarnation type of scenario, which is kind of magical and religious. And Father Christmas appears. It's basically the story of death and resurrection. It was during this play in 1762 when George was playing the warrior. And he was being brought back from the dead by the doctor in the play. He wasn't actually dead. So it's like you, they fake dead and the doctor comes in and like okay. performs a reincarnation, essentially. And in this moment, as George is being brought back from the fake dead, that something completely takes over him. And he starts getting tossed around the stage, like slapped. And everyone in the audience is watching. He's being thrust around. It looks like he's being physically manipulated, punched and thrown before the entire town. And finally it stops. And George is just like, kind of like comes to and he looks out into the crowd and there's something dark within him and it's believed that this is when George Lukens was possessed and then became known as the Yatan Demoniac The demoniac is written in the earliest verses of the Bible as something very different than just a possession and someone being influenced by demonic powers. The demoniac is able to destroy one's personality, control their actions, words, and use the body as a path into the kingdom of man. So basically what this means is that, you know how they talk about like a portal to hell or a portal where demons come in and out of places? Mm -hmm. This is a human portal. So basically the idea of a demoniac is that demons, dark entities, can use a human being as a portal that many entities, many dark spirits can then go through them. So that is what George Lukens is believed to have become. Whoa. Yeah. So is it
1: technically a possession? Yes, but it's like beyond it. So do do the demons come in and stay? Or is it more just like when they need a vessel, when they need a meat to kind of use someone as their medium? Medium, so that, whoa,
0: medium. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. It's definitely, there's elements of possession because based on the research I did in George's behavior, I think so much of it is very similar to a regular possession. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea is that at any given time, multiple demonic entities can be coming in and out of him. So like, say I was a demoniac, which I'm not. Knock on wood. I think entities could then come through me and, like, out of me and into someone, like, and try to uh, impact and affect other people around me. So they use me as, like, a in-between between the dark hell and this world. And then they can also utilize me as a medium. Hmm. As a vessel. But that is not an invitation. I am not a demoniac. Nor do, do I, I want to be. Nor will I ever be. Okay. Right. But so, basically... Shortly after the Mummer's play, George started confiding in a friend because his behavior became so erratic and strange after this performance, and he told his friend that he felt like something was wrong with him ever since the Mummer's play. He felt like something had taken over him and that he was possessed, and he said he was hearing voices, and these voices were telling George that he belonged to them, that he was theirs, and he was just basically a prop, that he belonged to Satan, the devil himself, And according to George, there were seven demons utilizing and taking over his body at that specific time. Mm. But no one took his claim seriously. But within days, George's entire demeanor changed. He was no longer this kind, gentle, loving member of the community. He became lethargic, pale, sluggish. Apparently, he started to bleed from his eyes that his eyes were just like red completely. Oh, that's sick. I know. And he started having seizures, which is something very iconic to possessions. Like a lot of people who have become possessed have and experienced seizures, but his seizures were like so unsettling and strange because they never happened when he was by himself. They only ever happened when he was surrounded by company and there was an audience. And whoever was there watching said it was the strangest thing they'd ever seen because George's body would start to seize and collapse. But his mouth would kind of always turn upwards, and then oh. his face would kind of just like turn, even though the rest of his body was writhing. His face would smile and stare Ew. at anyone around him Ew. as if they wanted the people to know that, like, George is gone. Mm, that's it was like. So scary. It was just like the demons fighting for for control of his body. Ooh, and then George began speaking in tongues. He would growl, he would scream, and he would sing in a really guttural voice. And he was taken to countless doctors. He begged for help, but there was none to be offered because no one could figure out what was wrong with him. And eventually, I think this is like ten to twelve years have passed, and like George is inflicted by this possession or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and he has no cure or no aid. And so finally he goes to a doctor who diagnoses him with Sydenham chorea, chorea, which is a neurological disorder that causes rheumatic fever and is characterized by rapid irregular movements in arms, legs and the face. And it's incredibly rare. And George was admitted into St. George's hospital in London for treatment. And the doctors there didn't know what to do because they would try to treat him for this. But they were like, I don't think this is the right prognosis. I don't think you actually have this. Mm-hmm. And so they let him go from the hospital because they were like, I'm so sorry. We, we, there's nothing we can do. So George goes back. He returns to Yat in England. And then finally, people are like, I think George is possessed because it's been 12 years. 12 years. 12 years. <gasps> And uh, George was acting very strange and speaking in weird tongues. He would like sing strange sounds in a different language. And then it was actually later discovered that he was singing all 200 words of the Te duum, which is my Latin word, in its original Latin, inverted, meaning that the Latin words were placed in reverse order and each word was pronounced backwards and George did not speak Latin. How nor- did they even figure that out? I have no idea. Someone must have been familiar enough with the Latin version of it that they... So it's a, it's a song? Uh-huh. Mm. Okay. It might not be a song, but it's like... Yeah, it definitely... I guess it is a song, but it's, um. there are many verses to it. So I wrote down one sentence. Te duum laudamas, te donimum te dominum confitimur. Which backwards. <laughs> I added a little accent to it. But which I know, backwards, you were a little French. I know, that's not Latin. Sorry. Which backwards, and which is how George was singing in a weird guttural voice for all 200 words of this. He was, okay, this is, I wrote it and now I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Okay. Rumi mu munimod et sumadual mued et. But now in singing. munimod et mued And imagine coming across someone you don't recognize, or even if you do, singing in their little shop looking out to the street. Staring up that you Bloody eyes Yeah a
1: Creepy ass crooked smile Mm-hmm No thanks How did his shop stay
0: in business? <laughs> I don't think it did I think I made that up But George was a tailor okay. Way back when So Now it's May 31st 1778 And this woman named Sarah Barber Was traveling through the town of Yatin She grew up there She was familiar with George She knew who he was growing up And she comes across him On this day, and George is singing and screaming in a deep, guttural, unhuman-like voice when no one's around. He was completely alone, and Sarah was worried about him. Sarah goes up to George and tried to confront him to see if he was okay, and George stopped singing. He silenced. He stared at her with a menacing look in his eyes, and he spoke low and quiet. And it was not George, and he said, George is in possession of me. George is in possession of seven demons. No one can take him away from us. And he, this entity, then looked at Sarah and like almost in a mocking but also very stupid way said, only the power of Trinity invoked by seven men of God would be able to free George. So, Like why this demon gave away like The key I don't know But maybe it was just
1: like Unless it was so cocky but you know what else I'm hearing from you and I don't know Why I haven't deduced this From all of the other times We've talked about demons and possession Demons are Very good at sharing
0: (laughs) Because there's seven uh, of them sharing George
1: Yes they all work together (laughs) I think that's admirable
0: Yep. For all the crazy (laughs) crappy
1: things that they do, I think that's the one redeeming quality they have. They're really good at
0: sharing and collaboration and teamwork. I, you know, I agree. I think I understand how you can understand how you could see that. But I question that because, and you'll learn in a few minutes, that they clearly weren't sharing very well and their own kind of needy desire is probably what screwed them up Mm -hmm. in the end of it. Because it seems like seven of them were all fighting to get out at once and they never really could. They were all stuck in there.
1: Oh, it's kind of like it reminds me of the movie Split where all of the personalities personalities are fighting
0: to be seen to come into the light. Yeah. I mean, there's so many parallels between possession and mental illness. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia specifically. It's a really tough, tough topic. Yes, it is. So these demons are kind of just giving up their kryptonite very easily, which I'm interested in. But I think it's probably the cockiness of like, you know, they think they're invincible. So they act as if they are and don't think that anyone would ever be able to defeat them, even though there is a way to do it. I don't know. Maybe they think
1: the coordination of seven holy spirits coming together It's just as difficult as seven demons trying to live in one body.
0: (laughs) I guess so. I guess so. But it wasn't because as Sarah was like trying to leave. Well, oh, first the demons were looking at Sarah through George and they were like, good luck. And then they were growling at her and they threatened her and they told her that it will not and will never be done. And Sarah was like, um, I'm going to try. So Sarah runs to the reverend, his name is Joseph Easterbrook, and she explains what she had seen and what she had heard, and she was just like, I think George is possessed. And Reverend Easterbrook nods and says, yes, it sounds like he's possessed and become a demoniac. He explains that George was not a vessel, but was a gateway for demonic entities that could pass through him and enter Earth, which is why George was experiencing all these seizures, that they were the demons passing through him, and he was this portal. He also believed that based on the fact that Sarah said this demon said there were like seven demons inside of him, that Reverend Easterbrook believed that George is trying, was trying to fight back, and because of that, these demons were stuck inside of him and unable to, like, push through and enter into our world. So they were still stuck inside of him. And so Reverend Easterbrook took Sarah's words very seriously, and he knew that these entities would not be defeated unless they followed their exact rules, which was the seven men of God having to come together. So he reaches out to all of the men of God that he knows, which... Apparently, he knows six more, so that's great. Together, he and six other men found George and brought him to the temple, to the temple church in Bristol, England. And guess what day it was? Halloween? No. Oh. Friday the 13th. Just as good. June 1778. And they began the exorcism of George Lukens. And immediately, The demonic entities spoke through George, but it was a voice that no one had previously heard before. So it sounds like it was like a, whichever is the strongest entity was coming through and it was just trying to defend itself. And it said that it spoke directly to the clergymen and declared that they were foolish, that this exorcism would never work and it would make things 10,000 times worse for George. And then it laughed a heinous laugh and everyone in the room went weak and as this is happening, the news around town of George's exorcism was spreading like wildfire. It was printed on the front page of the newspapers. And then Reverend Easterbrook and the clergyman he was working with were worried about, you know, the attention and that the attention to George's exorcism would make the entity stronger because it's almost like that's what they want. The power of Satan being noticed and memorialized. Mm-hmm. And so they cordoned off the church and they made sure to take detailed notes of their own so that then when the exorcism was finished, that they could publish the notes and make sure that the account was very detailed and that there was no room for people to make up stories or really like contact the demons that they believe they got out. So basically they they tried to narrate the story and direct the narrative. And this account was published on June 18th, which is kind of nice because now we have it so we can read it and talk about it. But there are definitely a lot of details missing, which I find quite suspicious. But I bet it's because as a church, you can't just advertise every little detail about an exorcism because what's to prevent people from trying to invoke those demons or perform it themselves. Right. Where, which could go terribly awry. Correct. So according to the priests in the room, they began singing a hymn and George was thrown into strange movements immediately. His face was distorted, his body convulsed, his right hand and arm began to shake with violence, and after some violent throes, he spoke in a deep, hoarse, hollow voice and called to the men, telling them, you're all silly. And George began to sing in Latin. The voice vowed eternal vengeance on those present all of them who were daring to oppose Satan. And the entity called out for his faithful servants to appear. And I'm saying this literally, all hell broke loose. (laughs) Oh my God. (sighs) The company began singing a hymn and Lukens became strangely agitated, speaking in various voices of deep tones, each denouncing what was being done and emphasizing that he would never release Lukens. Lukens himself began to sing in a weird voice. The voice changed to that of a female, scornful in tone, and telling Lukens that he was going to be punished for being, for allowing his body to be brought into the church. And the voice started to condemn the gathering as before and changed back to a male voice And then eventually the voice inside him declared to be the devil himself and defined himself and said that he would hunt down every last one of the men of God in the church. And then there was another song at which at the end of Lukens appeared to be violently tortured and thrashed about so fiercely that it was only with difficulty that that five of the men could hold him. And he was a small man. And then he would give demonic laughs or bark in frightening manners. And eventually, so this is a part where I think there's a lot of details missing. It seems like there's just like scary things that happened that George did. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, eventually they performed this prayer and then they said, bless Jesus. And all of a sudden it all stopped. So it feels like there's something missing in that chunk of time. Like what specifically happened? But anyway, apparently they said this prayer and with the words, bless Jesus at the end of the prayer, George stopped seizing. He appeared normal, looked over at these men and told them, I feel free. And he recited the Lord's Prayer without consequence. He was able to do it without like his weird tremors or his, Mm -hmm. you know, bleeding eyes, etc. And he smiled and laughed and truly believed that he was free. And it's believed that the demons left George for good. But as with many possession stories or exorcism stories, the public questioned it quite a lot. Quite a lot. Why, why am I saying Quite that? a lot. Quite a lot. And people believe that it was a farce, that George had hypochondria, and that he was just making things up, and he wanted attention, and he wanted money. But he didn't, if he wanted money, he failed miserably because he died in poverty over those like 14 years of his possession, he lost his job, made zero dollars, and became a recluse. So if it was for money, that didn't work out for him. No. And Reverend Easterbrook himself insisted it was real and that he had never been so frightened in his life. And he even wrote a book with further details of George's possession. As for George, like I said, he fell into poverty, became a recluse, and died alone but seemingly unpossessed in February of eighteen o
1: five okay, well, I'm glad that he his life didn't end with him being possessed, like a few of the cases that we have covered, which is just so sad, yeah, but it also makes me wonder, I don't know it it's tough with this because like my mind does balance between you know, taking the skeptic side of, like, what if it was mental illness? What if it was him just being a hypochondriac and wanting attention? And then also, like, the side where we're more inclined to (laughs) believe all of those things and are totally like, oh, my gosh, yes, that's so terrifying. And I just feel like if I take the other side and said, like, oh, he must have just been faking it, he must have been doing this or that, why the sudden – why was it such, like, a hard line between – him acting so bizarre and then him being quote unquote freed from demons. If I, if I take that stance, like, I feel yeah. like I'm, I, I feel like he was totally possessed because for him to just do a whole 180 and be a completely different person and never show any sort of like signs or inklings of, of desire to act like that again. Right. It means that he really wasn't, he really was operating
0: outside of his true spirit for those however many years. Yeah, Yeah. And it's over 14 years, basically. Yeah. From 62 to 78. That's a long time to fake a possession or to be a hypochondriac. And, and doctors were trying to treat him for things. And he even, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I also, like, if you're a hypochondriac, are you faking possession or are you faking, like, the flu, you know?
1: Right. Like, I'm a hypochondriac. I I thought I had (laughs) brain-eating amoebas and had an absolute breakdown in the workplace a few years ago. Like, that's more of in lines with a hypochondriac. You're not like, hey, I have demons and I'm going about and doing whatever. And I also wonder if the demons... Kind of said the whole like, there are seven of us and blah, blah, blah. You'll never, you'll never get us because they spent so much time with George that they probably thought they had built a really solid base and were latched and tethered to him permanently.
0: I know that's what's so interesting too, because I'm amazed that George's spirit was able to fight for so long. Because if a demon was in me for even like a day, I probably would be like, tap, tap, I'm out.
1: And then it goes the whole question of, was he even George or aware of it at any point? Because I I think when we visited some of the demonic possession cases, there have been instances where the person's like aware of what's going on and is kind of like back and forth between a demon possessing them and them being like, oh my God, help me. I don't know what's going on. I'm feeling really bad. Yeah. But what if it got to the point where, His soul never came to the surface. He was almost like in a coma,
0: so to speak, while the demons
1: lived in the front.
0: Right. But I wonder, though, if he's this portal of sorts and these demons weren't able to get through him like and pass in and out of hell, Mm -hmm. then he must have been fighting back to some extent. Or, Or perhaps he was just possessed by multiple demons and he was less of a portal and it was more just a possession. But... I'm no priest what do I know we're not experts oh my gosh I have to tell you so one of my co-workers she is a writer for prodigal son she said that she was like she has a friend who basically works in the military and as part of a effort to write stories about people who have been in the military that don't don't just have PTSD because that's kind of like the the trope on television. He has partnered with a lot of Hollywood writers and brings them onto these really crazy experiences. And I can't remember what she went on, but she went on like some crazy jet and some, some military grade jet and was there with a priest who travels in the military with the soldiers. And he has, and he told her that his favorite movie is the exorcist because It is nothing in comparison to what he sees every day. (gasps) What? Yes. We need these stories. I know. I was talking to her about it, and she was like, I wish I got his name. And she she said it was funny because she was on – she got on the plane, and they put her next to this guy who was in his, like, full priest gear. And she was like, great, I'm stuck next to a priest. Like, what am I going to talk to a priest about and then they start taking off and they're right next to the massive um, engine that's going whoo woo, whoo like so loud. And all of a sudden he turns and goes, so I perform exorcisms. And she <laughs> was just like, <laughs> I would literally be like,
1: this is the best day of my life.
0: Oh, I need to get more stories from her. She's joining. She's going to be in New York in a few days, actually. So I'll try you to have get more to. stories. Oh, did, does she? Does she have his contact? No, that's the other thing. She didn't, ju- she doesn't have his name. Damn it. I know. <sighs> Honestly, if you ever find
1: yourself next to a priest who conducts exorcisms, that is like, that on top of maybe like, I don't know, the chief of police's phone number are the best two contacts <laughs> to have if you're ever in a bind. Yep. Yep. You're right. Wow. Okay. well, talking about all of this, I want to do a quick little pause just because possessions are scary and having spirits in your house can be scary. And we have been asked and in our letters from our letter from one of our listeners, he asked if we could do a little tiny segment on how we cleanse our home and protect our home. Oh. So I'll just really quickly say how I have done it. And then also one of our listeners, Claire Goodchild, she has her own company called Blackened the Moon, and she's like the most beautiful products. I have a framed piece from her in my room. We both do. We both do. <laughs> and then I also have her tarot cards, which are beautifully packaged. I just got them in the mail. I just buy everything, but I signed up for her newsletters, which is why I see when things come in. Anyway, she did a five alternatives to white sage and Palo Santo. So I want to read her list too. Oh, that's that's great. awesome. But for myself and what my family has done, we in Vermont, in our home, we uh, start out often with incense just to be a bit gentler with how we cleanse the space. And if there's something that we think needs a little more attention something that um or any just big changes so it doesn't have to be something negative and it doesn't have to be a spirit in your home that you want to get rid of to want to cleanse your space and the energy um mm-hmm. around your home it could be like you have a new baby or you had a promotion or just like it, it can be positive but yeah. um we do have sage. We have – there's a store that I really love in Burlington called Spirit Dancer in Burlington, Vermont. And mm-hmm. a lot of the sage that they have is, like, ethically sourced and purchased from, um, like, Native Americans and, and stuff. So if that's something that you want to be sensitive to, which you should be sensitive to, you can still find some of the stuff at a store like that without – Going and seeking out specific like areas. It's it's not that hard, I guess, to find something that's ethically sourced if you're really looking yeah. for it. So I have a sage stick that has cedar and lavender and sage in it. And that is what I use. And if things are really bad, I bump it up to white copal and I smoke some white copal.
0: Nice. I don't
1: smoke it. it. The it, house smokes it. It smokes on like a little bed of charcoal and create smoke. <laughs> I don't ingest it into my lungs. OK, but Claire Goodchild, and I hope she doesn't mind that I'm totally stealing this from her and from her newsletter. Oh, yeah, that's fine. But she wrote um, just about the discussion of ethical uses of White Sage and Palo Santo because White Sage and Palo Santo are from are sacred to indigenous groups and are definitely being over harvested. So there are alternatives to cleansing your space. If you would like to cleanse your space, common sage, like kitchen sage that you can buy from the grocery store. Also mugwort, lavender, mirror resin, and incense sticks. And then she writes bonus, Go smokeless and use sound to cleanse. Bells Ooh. and chimes are the easiest way to cleanse when burning plants is not an option. Wait, that's amazing. I know. I thought that was so nice because those are – I didn't even think about sound. Yeah. There are some ways, some alternatives. And if you have demons,
0: maybe take it a, a step up and just go yes. to priest. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I mean, that's also the thing when you're cleansing a space, you're clearing it. So whenever you're doing it, making sure you the important thing to also think of is that afterwards, making sure you're filling the space with positivity, with like mm-hmm. lighting white tea candles or saying prayers that are positive or whatever you practice specifically, just making sure you're not just cleansing and then going, making sure you have the intention of positivity with it.
1: hmm. There's also a mental practice that I do a bunch where we've talked about it before but it's basically like a ribbon wrapping where you sit still in a chair and you just try to clear your mind and you picture a ribbon or a thread of silk or something that starts at the very top of your head and basically wraps itself around your entire body until it gets to the end of your toes and seals off protecting all of your chakras and protecting you it's if you're not good at meditating or maybe don't know how to start off with like positive intentions or or kind of blocking yourself off from bad energy, that's just mm-hmm. a really simple trick.
0: Yeah, I've tried it. It's it works a lot. I feel like I don't it, get it, yeah. It's effective. Yeah, I don't find myself in situations where I feel unsafe or threatened by negative energy at all, or often. Mm-hmm. But the few times that I have, your method has always worked.
1: Well, I'm glad it works for you. I wish I could remember who taught me that. Oh. So I could give them credit. It was, I was like 13 or 14 when I first learned it. Um, and then also just know that if you are cleansing your space, it does not mean that you are ridding your space of ghosts. Some ghosts are totally cool, totally friendly, good vibes only ghosts. And so when you're putting out good vibes only in your home, they are too, and they're staying. (laughs) You've disappeared. Which is why. My Vermont house still has so many spirits. So many. Okay. What'd you do? I am doing the Danny Poltergeist case. Ooh. So, it's not from that long ago. It's semi recent. Whoa, what? Though the spirit is from a while ago, or the pol- possible poltergeist. So, anyway, Whoa. the year is 1998. What are we doing in 1998? I don't know, hanging out with Furbies, getting down to the
0: Backstreet Boys. My brother was peeing on me when he was a little baby cuz he was just born. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um eating a uh, what are were Dunk Dunkables a thing then or was that early Dunkaroos. 2000s? Dunkaroos. Fruit by the foot, right? Dunkaroos. Oh my gosh, Friends was like actually on air then? It wasn't just reruns. It was definitely did not watch then. Just so many good things in 1998. However, so many great things. However, for one family, it was not so great. Uh, and for the residents in Savannah, Georgia, they were terrified in 1998 to hear of a poltergeist who had terrorized the Cobb family's son. They read about the haunting in a series of essays that were published by Jane Fishman, who was a reporter for the Savannah Morning News after Jane had been made aware of what had happened. So in 1998, she publishes all of this information and Savannah, Georgia is just like, whoa, this is freaking creepy. So the Cobb <laughs> family, they resided in Savannah, Georgia. It is around Christmas time and Mr. Cobb, the father, is on the hunt for the perfect gift for his family members. And one such family member that he has in mind, one person he has to buy for, uh, is his son, Jason. So Mr. Cobb, he goes out, and he's on the search for a good gift for his son, who I believe was only 14 years old at this point. And he ends up, finds himself at an auction. And at this auction, he spots this beautiful antique bed frame from the late 1800s. And he's like, wow, that is absolutely perfect. I know Jason is really going to love this bed. So at the auction, he wins the bed and he takes it home for Jason. And Jason is thrilled to receive this gift. They set it up in Jason's bedroom and he's just like, man, what a nice bed. He sleeps on it. It's great. He sleeps on it well. It really ties the room together. He feels like a very cool, put-together 14-year-old at this point. But after three nights of sleep, Jason begins to feel something. It felt like there was something sitting on his pillow watching him. And it felt like there were Mm -mm. elbows, like indentations of elbow marks on either side of his pillow. And then he swore he could hear breathing, too. And the air felt really cold. And it almost felt like there was cold air being blown onto his neck. Almost like someone was like, you know, like the tight squeeze. Oh, I I just got the chills from that. The
0: shiveries or whatever that. that I don't like that.
1: So, yeah, he's, he's pretty creeped out. And the feeling doesn't really last long, though, at night. Like, he'll feel it. He, he thinks someone's in his room, he feels the indentation, he feels the cold, but he quickly becomes tired when he feels this presence. And so it's as if whatever is present and next to him or over him while he's in bed is also trying to put him to sleep. So Jason, on one side, is like trying to fight and see and be aware of what's going on. But on the other side, he's being like lured into sleep, kind of like into this submissive position. So... Oh my god, I hate this so much. Yeah, it's super creepy. So then Jason goes and he tells his parents, but unfortunately, Mr. and Mrs. Cobb don't believe Jason. They're like, sweetie, don't worry, you are having a bad dream. Maybe you're just so tired at night that you're kind of like hallucinating this feeling. Or maybe it's a new bed, there's an adjustment period. Maybe the way that you lay in the bed or the way that the bed frame is like... You know, carrying the actual mattress is creating this illusion of someone sitting next to you or over you. And maybe the way that the air moves over the new bed frame, it's resulting in this like weird breathing sound, cold air. There are explanations, but you're probably just dreaming. And so Jason's like, okay. And he goes and sleeps in his room again in his new bed. And in his bedroom is a photo of his grandparents. And he notices that this photo is actually tipped, tipped over. It's tipped down. It's face down. So he goes over and he fixes the photo before going to bed, just like puts it upright. Mm-hmm. And the night is fine. Nothing happens. He's not overly scared. Um, so he begins to think that like maybe, maybe he was just overreacting. So as he gets up and he's about to take on the morning, he's been a little bit more confident. That was a good night of sleep. He notices that the picture is again turned over again. (gasps) Weird. That's weird. So Jason makes just, he fixes it, makes his way down to the breakfast table, joins his parents, gets on with his morning. But sometime after breakfast, he then goes back to his room and he finds the picture again. But this time, the picture's not just face down where it was. No. This time, the picture is in the middle of his bed placed in the middle of his bed, surrounded by toys that had all moved from different areas of his room to sit on top of his bed, sitting in a circular fashion, all facing inward at the photo. Like a
0: weird no. So he screams and he runs. This reminds me so much of the Sally house. Oh, you're right. With the toys like all in the baby's room, sitting in like a weird circle. Yes. And we've totally had
1: listener stories that have had this same yes.
0: Sort of thing. Yes. <gasps> I don't Maybe there's like a poltergeist
1: that, that disguises itself as different things, but maybe it's always one sort of demon. Or maybe there's a genre of demons and this is just like their MO.
0: Yeah. They just like, like their toys and they put all their demons inside the toys. It's like they went to Monsters University and this was the class <laughs> that they had. <laughs> this is, oh, they're all in training. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a cute way to put it a very terrifying a way to spin it
0: they haven't found their signature yet no wait speaking of there's a that new serial killer who's like the worst serial killer in u.s history oh my god yes he's confessed to over 90 murders yeah and they think that he
1: was linked to many more like there, it's it's over 100 that they believe he's responsible for it's so
0: crazy. What's his it name? It was like 150 like
1: 115. I don't know.
0: That's stuck in my head. Samuel Little, I think, is his name.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was, all, it was all women.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's so creepy. It's so, so creepy.
1: Oh, God. Makes you wonder
0: how. And it, it was over like a 50, 60-year period, wasn't it? Yeah. How do you get away with something like 35 that? 35 years. Admitted to 93, spanning 19 states in 35 years. Jesus. Oh gosh so awful i don't know enough about it. i need to read up on it but it's like i i just started a google alert on murder so every morning my (laughs) morning read it's only okay because you have the job that you do but if you didn't you'd probably be flagged somewhere i think i probably am already flagged but then they realize they have a job but they're still like hmm if nick goes missing
1: Yeah. I always get nervous that I'm going to get flagged because of the speed in which I switch from one subject, a really dark subject, to something light. (laughs) It'll be like I'm reading something absolutely horrific, and then all of a sudden I'm like, Pottery Barn, like, I don't know, wreaths. (laughs) It's just like, it's such a quick reaction. I'm like, oh, this makes me look like I'm disturbed, and I I don't have enough time to, like, (laughs) mourn victims. You're not saddened by it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Jason. Jason was very saddened by what he saw with the picture and the toys in the circular fashion on his bed. So he's screaming and he runs back to the kitchen where his parents are. And he just grabs them and hastily guides them back to his room to reveal what he discovered to provide the proof that whatever he had been feeling in the previous few nights was real. And that something strange was going on in this house. (laughs) And much to Mr. And Mrs. Cobb's horror the toys in the picture were still sitting in the middle of the bed. So they had proof. And that's when they realized that they should have believed Jason. And they understood that now there was something else in the house with their family. Yikes. And this spirit, this energy in the house, now that it had the attention of the Cobb family parents, it began to show itself and its presence all over it. Gained a ton of confidence and just really started to make moves. I hate a confident so, demon. Gotta hate. Yeah. So that was in the morning. And then sometime in the afternoon, the furniture in the house starts to shift and move on its own. What? So this energy seems super powerful, super strong. Oftentimes furniture moving and like heavy things moving is associated with poltergeist activity. Right. Um, so they're just like, look, something's going on. Something is clearly trying to communicate with us. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Cobb is like, hmm, maybe if I make contact, oh, I could no. help the spirit along and stop all the paranormal activity in my house. <sighs> so. He stands up in the middle of the room and he calls out, do we have a Casper in this house? Tell me who you are. How old are you? (laughs) It seems (laughs) so innocent. Seems so innocent because probably, I mean, I I think your average Joe Schmo doesn't have a lot of knowledge on ghostly activities in the paranormal world. So I'm sure it was just like, oh, do we have a ghost? Is this what other people experience when they have ghosts? So he sits there. Mr. Cobb sits there in the room for some time And an hour or two pass, and nothing happens. So it's a failed attempt at communication. So he thinks, all right, I'll just leave the room. I'll come back in a little bit. I'll try again. And he puts down a a piece of paper and pencil down on the bed, and he leaves with the intention of returning a little while later. But only a few minutes pass, and Mr. Cobb, he's a bit anxious, and he returns into the room to think again about how to properly make contact with the spirit. And that's when he notices that one of the papers that he had left on the bed has writing on it. And it's childlike. It's big block, childlike letters. And the letters spell out, Danny, seven. So the spirit's name is Danny. And Danny is seven years old. Wow, it's a child. No. So feeling suddenly parental... Mr. Cobb begins to grow fond of the spirit and he leaves papers and pencils out for the next few weeks. He asks questions. The spirit of young Danny returns in the form of writing letters. And so they're communicating. They're communicating pretty freely. And Mr. Cobb is learning a lot more about Danny and why he's suddenly in their home. And so Mr. Cobb finds out that Danny's mother was quite ill and had actually passed away in their home on her bed Back in 1899. And the bed that Danny's mother passed away on is the bed that Mr. Cobb gifted his son Jason for Christmas, the antique bed he got at the auction. And the spirit of Danny really did not like when other people slept on his mother's bed and he wanted Mm. to stay with his mother's bed. And on paper, in his childlike writing, he wrote, no one sleep in bed. Danny was not the only spirit in the house. There's... It's really weird. It's like something awakened when the bed entered the Cobb's home. And Jason began making contact with other spirits in the home as well. So there was a man who went by the name of Uncle Sam who said that he was there to get his daughter who had been buried underneath the Cobb family home. And then there was another spirit that was the the spirit of Gracie Watson, who was a young girl who actually has a sculpture of her on display at the... Bonaventure Cemetery and then there was a third spirit named Jill who also took to letter writing and Jill was a young woman and she liked to leave the cobs handwritten messages and in one such such message she actually invited the cobs to a party that she was throwing in their living room oh my god so there are all these new spirits coming forth but really the spirit to worry about was the spirit of Danny this young seven year old boy who revealed himself who came with the bed and was terrorizing Jason in his bedroom and scaring the rest of the family. So Jason, at this point, he has already moved out of his room. After that fourth night, he was just like, I'm out. After he saw the picture and the toys and that creepy-ass formation, he was like, "Uh, I'll sleep somewhere else. Yeah. But this one day, during the day, he decides to do a little test. And he goes into his bedroom, he lays down on the bed, and he pretends to take a nap. Mm. And nothing happens. So he's like, ooh, I might be able to move back into my room. So he sits up, intending to leave his room, when a terracotta head, <laughs> a, a, like a mask that he had hanging on his wall as decoration, flies off the wall across the room and barely misses his head. Ugh. And it just smashes and breaks and shatters on the closet door. Ooh. So Jason hurries out of the room. He realizes he made a mistake. Yeah. He taunted the spirit. He made the spirit very angry. And things started to get worse. Strange notes began appearing on papers throughout the house. Kind of like cryptic messages. Uh, furniture began to move again in, in stronger, more dramatic ways. There were chairs that were like stacked upside down. Lights were being turned on and off on their own. The kitchen cabinets would not only open, but purge themselves of everything held inside. So it would just basically like, vomit everything out of the cabinet. Ooh. So the Cobb family's is like, we've had enough. We don't want to live like this. The solution seems easy. All of this started when the bed came in. Danny loves the bed. Danny doesn't want us by the bed. Let's just get rid of the bed to get rid of Danny. Right. So that's exactly what they do. They bring a large car over to their home. They load up the bed and they go off and they sell the bed. And after that, the Cobb family had not an inkling of paranormal activity in their home again. So it was a huge success. But the owner of the bed, the new owner was not safe. Oh my god! Danny gosh. very much followed his mother's bed into the home of the new owner who is named David Brogdon. Uh, he was or is probably still is. It's not that long ago. A merchant and hobbyist who collects antiques and he and his wife had heard about this haunted bed and they were delighted to see what would come of owning it to themselves. <laughs> and Danny did not disappoint. Odd things began to happen in the couple's antique shop. The alarm clock in the shop would go off like two or three times a day when it was never set to go off at those times or even be plugged in at times. And oh their customers also changed. So the people coming in started reporting feeling very tired. And this tiredness eventually turned into resentment. Ooh. And to save their business and their reputation and their customers, the uh, Brockton family were like, "Nah, it's time to get rid of this antique bed. It was fun. Right. But actually kind of a bad idea. Yeah, was it fun? <laughs> Was it fun? I don't know. They got a story out of it. It was brief. Dinner parties. Yeah. And it was in their antique shop, not in their personal home. So I think they had a safe space maybe after hours, unless their antique shop was was attached to their home. Because my aunt and uncle, they did have an antique shop in Waterbury, Vermont, and it was attached. Like, they lived in the antique. Their house was also an inn that was also an antique shop. It Mm -hmm. was super interesting. That is cool. And now they sold it. And now it's a sex shop. Oh, which I don't think they get behind, but I think I bet it's hilarious. The antiques are really happy about that. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it was also a photography store. So wow, there might of- be some photographic evidence of all <laughs> of the above. <laughs> okay, so the next owner of this bed, and I believe she may still own this bed now, is Pam Witten. Pam was encouraged by her daughter, Heidi, to buy the bed. And so she did. And she set up the bed in her garage. And whenever she enters her garage, she said that there's this really strange sensation. And the room turns icy cold. Why is it in the garage? Because Pam believes that the spirit of Danny may not be just a seven-year-old boy. She's like, this is a very, she calls it a, a disturbed spirit. Mm. Probably a poltergeist. And that it's best to leave this spirit alone and therefore leave Danny's soul alone, undisturbed, unprovoked. And so in order to do all those things, it's best to set it up in the garage where she rarely goes in and, and sees the bed. And it's also away from her and her daughter. And it's away from other people who may not respect the boundaries as much as she right. has set them to be, which seems to work for both her and her daughter and Danny. Hmm. So this bed and the spirit of Danny are definitely real. However, what's odd, what I think is odd, is that the Cobb family experienced more paranormal activity than just Danny when the bed had arrived. And then after the bed was removed, all of the activity ceased. Hmm. So what gives with these other spirits? They didn't show up in the other houses. They're not attached to the bed. So after learning about the Cobb poltergeist case... The parapsychologist Andrew Nichols, who heads the Florida Society of Parapsychological Research, investigated the case of the Danny Poltergeist and the Cobb family and Jason. And what he found was that there's a wall in Jason's room, the wall that Jason started sleeping next to once his new bed was placed against that wall. This wall has an electromagnetic energy. And so... The belief is that Jason, he already had these sort of psychic abilities that lay dormant within him Hmm. when he slept next to this wall, which was then he was sleeping next to the wall because the bed was placed that way. Right. It basically awakened his abilities quite simply. And so regardless of Danny's spirit, regardless of Danny's mother's bed, this antique bed, Jason would have eventually tapped into his ability because there was this electromagnetic energy so close to where he slept every night. Interesting. Yes. And there are still many unanswered questions about the other spirits in the home and like where they went and what happened to them after Danny left. But for now, the Cobb family is at peace and Danny's spirit
0: remains guarding his mother's bed for eternity. I'm so curious because I don't believe that it's a seven-year-old boy.
1: Oh, I definitely don't. A seven-year-old boy doesn't come with the power to... Okay, if you were a seven-year-old boy, number one, your Emma would not be to crouch over someone as they sleep and breathe on them. That's not a seven-year-old boy. A seven-year-old boy would be sitting at the edge of the bed or standing in the corner watching you or, like, I don't know, cozying
0: up next to you. A seven-year-old boy does not hover and, like, freak you out. The one way I buy it is that like, you know, the same way a child goes to wake up their parent and they hover over them because it's like, wake up now. I would see that. But once he realized it wasn't his parent, the way that he escalated and became terrifying makes me believe it's not a seven year old boy.
1: It was also like as the communication with Mr. Cobb increased, so did the energy and power of the, the spirit, which right. makes me fully believe it was an entity because it thrives off of the energy in the home versus maybe you're just average spirit who might just be playing on one level the whole time.
0: Yeah, I'm also curious, like, and we talked about this briefly when we discussed Black Eyed Kids, but can... Child spirits become possessed, you know? Can a darker demonic entity manipulate a child spirit or any other spirit to do their bidding? So can Danny's spirit really be a seven-year-old boy, but a dark entity is manipulating him?
1: It could be. I mean, I don't remember if it was Waverly Hills Sanatorium or where it was.
0: It was when we were talking about doppelgangers. God, where was it? I don't know, but there was... There was only something in the in Waverly Hills. There was what? There was definitely something in Waverly Hills about this.
1: Yeah, I thought it was something like there was a little kid and like a like the spirits were basically saying, I don't know if it was a little kid per se, but there were spirits basically like that were actively showing that they were afraid of something darker that was around the creeper. saying like run or like I need help or I'm trapped or something like that or like he's going to get me. Yeah, yeah. It's just God, isn't that scary to think that in the afterlife, there's a possibility
0: that you might be running from demons for some time? I guess it makes sense, right? if you're if you believe in the idea that your soul remains here in a what's the word? Um, the middle ground. what's it called? Pur- purgatory? No, Purgatory. Yes. I don't remember. I was bad. I didn't pay attention in CCD. <laughs> Right? Purgatory? Yeah. Purgatory. Yeah. If you believe in purgatory, like, it's the idea that you haven't been able to move on yet, so you're not in heaven or hell. It's just, yeah, it's the in between. Right. So y- it, it makes sense that darker entities would be waiting around, lurking and trying to pull you down. Mm hmm. Ugh. You bad. Ugh is right. Okay, okay.
1: it's time. For listener stories. Listener
0: stories. Listener stories. Listener, listener stories. stories. Listener stories. Because what haunts you can kill you. My true story from LK. Hello, spooky ladies. Your podcast has quickly become my favorite. I love the witty banter and humor that is laced through all your terrifying episodes that keep me from sleeping at night. Did I mention the lack of sleep is starting to make me look like a black-eyed kid? Ha ha. ha <laughs> I've been wanting to share some of my stories as I have experienced many strange things in my life for as long as I can remember. My whole family is similar. I'm also extremely empathetic, intuitive, and sensitive, and I agree that this is definitely a blessing and a curse. The story I want to share is sad but true. I try to keep it short, but it's still long. Sorry. I was previously married for nearly 13 years to so the man I believed was my soulmate. We will call him Ethan. Ethan. We first dated in high school for two plus years. He was my first love, first everything, and we had an almost magnetic attraction to one another. We were extremely connected and used to joke that we had cursed one another so we would be together for at least seven centuries. I think we probably have been throughout our past lives, and that is why the connection was so deep. Long story short, I moved away my junior year of high school and then returned a year later. Ethan and I broke up during my absence because long-distance relationships in high school rarely work out. However, we always kept in touch throughout the years, often trying to date again, but our lives were vastly different. Eventually, Ethan and I both, separately, moved away from our home state and married other people. We both got divorced around the same time, with no children from those marriages, and met again seven years later. I swear it was as if we had never been apart for a single day. He soon moved back to our home state where I already was, and I became pregnant a few months later. No surprise there. LOL. We got married. (laughs) I loved Ethan beyond words. We had two beautiful children of the corn who are now 18 and 14. (laughs) During our marriage, Ethan battled bipolar disorder, something that surfaced after I became pregnant with our first child. And not long after our second child, he began a battle with drug and alcohol addiction. We had some very tough years, but we managed to stick together. And every summer we went on vacation with Ethan's family to some fun beach location. This particular year, we went to Folly Beach near Charleston, South Carolina, and we stayed in a newly built three-story house right on a cove near the bay side. The house was beautiful and also extremely haunted. Everyone in the house had some disconcerting experiences. Sounds of people stomping up and down the stairs, doors slamming or shutting on their own. Smaller things were moved around or missing, and there was an overall sense of uneasiness. We also heard growling noises, and let me clarify that we had no pets in this house. Ethan and I had super vivid nightmares every single night we were there. It was unsettling and there was such an air of heavy sadness through this place that it felt like you could not breathe. This was also probably the darkest time in our relationship ever up to that point. I feel like our negative energy was attracting everything evil and bad in that house. One night toward the end of our trip, Ethan and I were asleep in our room in the bed and our kids, who were still saplings, were on air mattresses sound asleep. And after a few hours, I awoke to strange noises and the sound of something or someone jumping up and down on the air mattress. Creepy as fuck. My blood ran cold and I turned the light on, yet there was no one there. Just our sweet little children deep in a slumber and the feeling of impending doom hanging over our room. It was unbelievable. Needless to say, I hardly slept and that light stayed on. Ethan and I left the vacation a week early as we were both worried and scared. We honestly could not bear to stay any longer, although the rest of the family managed to stay on to finish the trip. We left that next evening, refusing to spend another night in that place. Storms raged out of control on our drive home. Trees were crashing down on the interstate. Wrecks were happening all around us, and the trip took hours longer than it should have. It was as if something was trying to prevent us from leaving that place, and I will never forget that feeling. When we returned home, we tried to settle back into our normal lives. However, that proved impossible. We heard constant growling in our house. We could see our black lab lying on the floor at one end of the house, and then she would suddenly appear at the other end when you entered another room. It was frightening, like a bad dream you couldn't wake yourself up from, but it was real. One night, while Ethan and I were in bed watching a movie, we saw something black that looked like a little feather boa or scarf. Pour like fluid off my dresser. Yet there was nothing on my dresser or the floor that remotely resembled anything like that. Shortly thereafter, a glass jar literally flew four feet away off the top of my dresser and nearly smashed into my face while Ethan was sitting even further away on our bed. Events of this nature became commonplace. My mother, who lived with us to help with the children, even experienced strange things. My daughter saw ghosts, particularly an older, angry man who would storm into her room some nights while she was sleeping and then suddenly disappear. Ethan became a different person, always manic or depressed and generally behaving erratically. He drank daily and began using stoner drugs like heroin and cocaine. He disappeared, removing himself from our family, staying out all night or sleeping in our backyard shed. We then began to hear the growling only when he was around. He also smelled awful, like old stale beer and sulfuric acid, a horrid smell that was only there when he was home. He left our home for over two months. He disappeared and abandoned us, and we let him come back on the condition that he tried to get help, and he went to a methadone treatment center as well as a psychiatrist. Not even a year later, things spun back out of control. We spent a couple more dark years together, our poor kids in the middle of this nightmare, until I was finally able to leave with our children in tow. Not long after, Ethan and I divorced, and the children and I found a nice rental house that was also mildly haunted to live in. And peace. We we found some peace, finally. There is so much more to the story from that point until the end. I will refrain from sharing all of it. But at one point after our divorce, Ethan was seemingly homeless and was hit by a car while walking down the road at night. And he nearly died. He had a long recovery, but he truly seemed like himself again. He even told me that he... "'That all he could think of was me and the kids after he was hit "'and told me how much he loved and still loved "'and always would love all of us. "'I really believed whatever was possessing him "'was flung from his body when that car hit him. "'No joke, he was a changed man. "'I should disclose I was remarried by now "'so there was no chance of reconciliation. "'I still cared, though. "'It would be impossible not to.' Not even a year after that accident, Ethan seemed not to be himself. He began using heroin again. He shot up with some allegedly laced with fentanyl and fell into a deep slumber for over eight hours. Ethan never woke up. He was with other people, friends, in quotes, that left him in a car as he died and only drove him to the local hospital after he was dead. Oh, wow. Apparently, they didn't want to get into any trouble or have their home be the center of an investigation. Oh, my God. The strange part of this story is... My phone rang in the middle of the same night that Ethan died. I was too asleep to answer, but a voicemail was left for me, an impossible voicemail. You see Ethan lay there on a table now deceased, his cell phone still in his pocket with a medical examiner in that same room questioning the party that brought in his body. The voicemail was merely a recording of that interview and nothing else. No one I questioned called me as I do not have the numeric code to unlock Ethan's cell phone. No one can explain how I received that voicemail message, but I think it was Ethan trying to make sure that I knew what really happened to him that night. I did share that message with his parents and siblings, and I hope that Ethan has found peace wherever he is and knows how much he is and was still loved, especially by his children. Thank you for reading. See you. Lovely ladies, on the other side. LK.
1: I have full body chills.
0: Oh my god. The voicemail part is (gasps) wild. So wild. Like, he was dead and he dialed his phone so that she could hear what happened to him.
1: I'm reflecting too on the piece about whatever had possessed him may have flung from his body that night. Makes me wonder if maybe whatever darkness had taken over him and was... Not to say that the darkness what resulted in his drug and alcohol addiction but right. if, when you are addicted to drug drugs and alcohol it can make you more susceptible to dark yeah. entities and it makes me wonder if maybe whatever had possessed him thought for sure he was gonna die and not so much flung from his body but was just like all right on to the next yeah and then realized after some time that he was still alive was still alive it's so sad it's really sad. It's a really hard thing to deal with. But yeah, I'm at least glad that he had those moments where he got to remind his family how much he loved them and that he had yeah. people that were so supportive of him mm-hmm. and that he got to have the final say he got
0: the final word from the voicemail. And especially because if his so-called friends who left him in the back of the car and only like bought him when he was dead instead of getting his him help. were
1: Probably on so many drugs. Yes, they 100%, probably were not in their right yeah. minds either,
0: right? But I think it's clear that they probably wouldn't have gone to tell the family what had happened. No, you for know, sure, they, no, they would have been. So there was scared. no intention of that. So for him to feel the need that his family find out what happened, I think is very special. Yes. What do you have? All right, this is
1: from Amber. It's called "The Boy Who Didn't Leave." Oh no! Hello, ladies. My name is Amber, and I love your podcast. I'm a tattoo artist in the Cincinnati area, and I enjoy listening to your podcast as I draw. So cool. I found you a couple weeks ago, and I have been binging ever since. First of all, I've had all sorts of paranormal encounters. Most of them are just curious, passing-by spirits, and I've had heartfelt communications with deceased relatives as well. For this email, I'm going to focus on my first and completely terrifying encounter, I grew up in my childhood home with my parents, three brothers, and one sister. I was always very spiritually sensitive, but nothing was active when I was young. Closer to when I was 15 was when the activity started. It didn't end until I moved out at 21. It began with nightmares. I started to feel really uncomfortable when I was sleeping in my room. The dreams started out vague, with a very malevolent entity chasing me while I felt like I was running in quicksand. The uncomfortable feeling in my room grew more and more intense. And the only way that I could sleep at all was with all of the blankets pulled completely around me with only a tiny breathing hole. Oh, I've totally done that before. Same. I knew I was being watched from the corner of my room and I never, <clears throat> ever looked. I don't quite remember the exact series of events, but things became worse. I'd hear the bathroom cabinets near my bedroom opening and closing for stretches of time. Once I woke in the middle of the night to my bedroom light turned on when I had fallen asleep with it off. The only way to turn on the light was to pull on the chain in the middle of the room. And even so, I thought maybe one of my siblings was just trying to play a prank on me. (laughs) That is until I looked at the foot of my bed. Arranged in a perfect stack at my feet were all the photographs I had taped to the wall as teenagers do. The only way for anyone to take the photos down while I slept was for someone to climb and step literally on top of me as they were on the wall that my bed was against. Another night, I woke around 3 a.m. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, and a heavy weight was putting me down. The terror that ripped through me can't be described. He was on top of me, Mm -mm. trying to suffocate me, it was a male entity that I had always sensed, but he was physically attacking me this time. It felt like it lasted for hours, and honestly, I had no sense of time, but it was so terrifying that the person who had never had a suicidal thought in her life wished for death. Oh my After gosh. it ended, I was so exhausted, I fell asleep. I woke up at 3 a.m. almost every night. Another time, I had a dream. It felt like a half-awake hallucination. In it, I was ripped from my bed and dragged down the hall. I clawed at the floor, trying desperately to avoid seeing what it wanted me to see. It pulled me to the front room, and I saw him, a teenage Mm -mm. boy, a very unhappy and malevolent spirit. His back was to me, and he was writing on the wall in blood. (gasps) I squeezed my eyes shut so I wouldn't see what it said, and then I woke up. In addition to this male entity, I felt like another form of darkness was swirling around, something demonic. I imagined that the negative vibes only attracted other darker things as well. I never said anything to my siblings. They were five years younger than me, and I didn't want them to be terrified. I brought it up to my parents finally, not wanting them to think I was crazy. And I asked about the history of this house and if they'd ever felt anything. My dad said that one night he woke up and he felt like his eyelids were being held shut by two fingers. Oh, I hate that so much. Yes. But that was it for him. Oh, my God, I have chills. That's it? Oh. (sighs) My mom never felt anything, not surprising, as she's not sensitive to this sort of thing. I was definitely being targeted. As for the history of this house, it was built in the 70s. We were only the second family to live in it. No one had died in it, but the room that I was in was the bedroom of one of the two teenage sons shortly after they had moved out and into their new home. He completed suicide. I can only imagine that he had strong ties to his childhood home. So he came back mm. and remember those pictures that had been torn off the wall and placed by my feet. I can only imagine he didn't want me to decorate his room. Eventually I moved out, never saying a word to my siblings about it. However, my brother also sensitive Did take my room. I asked him one day if he'd ever felt anything. He said that one night it got really cold and he could hear conversations while he lay there, unable to move. Mostly, he said, he could see the spirit of a teenage boy standing in the corner watching him sleep. Oh, My brother had never been told the history of the house. He never said anything because he thought he was being crazy. One night, in later years, I spent the night on the couch for Christmas Eve. I had my new dog with me sleeping beside me at this time. And around 3 a.m., he woke up, stared into the dark kitchen, and growled, his hair standing on end. At the time, I grew up in a very conservative Catholic family, and I wasn't aware how to physically protect myself, which I am now. I did at the time go and talk to a priest of our church. Vulnerable and terrified, I sought him for help. He simply told me I was watching too many horror movies. <laughs> I never watched horror movies at that point in my life. I like how she says at that point because like, she totally does now. Right. <laughs> the activity always came in waves with enough time passing in between to convince myself that it was over. It never was.
0: Ugh, I hate that.
1: Since then, I have saged the house but only my parents live there now and he's never really bothered them. It seems that it targets the teenaged sensitive since he himself died as a teenager years Mm. later, after moving out, I still had terrifying nightmares of being in my home. Then I had an incredible dream. I was in the kitchen of my childhood home and I knew the dark entity was coming close again. I was so terrified. I just wanted to be free of these nightmares. Then the whole feeling of the room changed a positive feeling drove away the weight of the fear that I had felt A man I had never seen before entered the room carrying an ancient-looking drum. Whoa. He set it in the corner, and he sat next to me. Looking deep in my eyes, he put his hands on each side of my head. He told me to close my eyes. As I did, he chanted some words I can't remember or recognize, but I saw a burst of colors and shapes. When he was done, I opened my eyes and he lowered his hands. There, he said. "You won't have the nightmares anymore. Whoa. I instinctively knew. Oh, chills. I instinctively knew he was a shaman, although I have no actual experience with anything like that. I woke feeling incredibly peaceful and I've never had nightmares or felt that sort of darkness again.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Thanks for being awesome. And I'll see you on the other side. Amber. Wow. There's a lot going on in this, but There's I will a say lot. it's amazing that you brought up the cleansing with sound earlier, and I feel like this is a perfect example of how whoever this entity in her dream was used sound to cleanse the, her
1: space. Yeah, the shaman, the good guy, came in and was like, you know what, girlfriend? I have been seeing, I have heard that you have been dealing with this really dark presence, and why don't I just take care of it for you? Yeah. I can't believe her own priest was like, you're just watching too many scary movies. It's like, uh, What?
0: Well, that's, I mean, I think that's the issue. We've talked, I think we talked about this in the one of our many Dominus episodes many a times ago, but where the Catholic Church is currently in not a full blown crisis, but in a crisis in terms of finding priests who are willing and able to perform exorcisms because there are so many kind of branches of the church that preach about the devil and yet don't truly believe in the power it has and so the catholic church is struggling to find enough priests who are able to do exorcisms because one they don't believe in it or two they're too scared of it
1: yeah it's upsetting cuz they're supposed to be one of the last lines of defense
0: i know i mean they exist i just think it's it's also such a tough job I yeah. can't imagine taking You're that You're putting off. yourself
1: at so much risk, too. Like, I wonder how, I mean, I guess they have a very strong relationship with positive energy in the universe and God. That's mm-hmm. their, their religion. But it it does make me wonder if there's ever been a priest who has found himself maybe possessed multiple times after trying to exercise a space or a person
0: i think shoot there is a story it it might be from a movie based on like a real story so i don't know if this part's true but i don't know i can't remember it but i remember watching and the priests who are doing it do end up getting possessed briefly so so scary yeah
1: although i love how you said I don't know. I can't remember because you and I say that so many times every single episode. And I'm serious about in 2020, we should just change our podcast name to I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember, but something
0: with ghosts.
1: (laughs) 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 This was awesome. This was scary. I might not sleep tonight. But if you guys have ghost stories, any sort of paranormal, cryptid, macabre off story it doesn't have to be scary it can totally be sweet it can be dreams feelings premonitions loved ones friends can have to do with anything your your pets but i like scary so also scary please but also Thank plenty you. of scary you can email them to us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com
0: and everyone please have a safe and happy halloween yes. uh send us photos of your costumes. And also one little business note we mentioned in the past few episodes, but this will be after this week, we're going to start transitioning into our new schedule where we're doing one Sunday. Every other Sunday is going to be like a long form encounters and the other two Sundays will be this type of episode. Yeah,
1: I guess regular and encounters and we'll still distinguish between them. So it will be like episode number, whatever, and then encounters number, whatever. So you'll Correct. know what you're getting each week. Yes. Yes.
0: You'll know what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> or will you? <laughs> or will you? Yeah, so you can support us in many ways. First of all, rate and review us on iTunes. That means a lot to us and is very important. And we appreciate it. Um, and before I forget, thank you to Eric Foster at UpFire Digital for editing this episode.
1: Um, some other ways to support us would be to tell everybody about us you can follow us on instagram follow us on facebook or really we don't really do much on our facebook page but you can join our facebook group where we have an excellent community and a superstar group of moderators who manage the page and keep it a safe and spooky and fun page to be a part of yes and we will. Should we say it backwards, real quick? All right. You look. You Re- look up into, into your brain. I'm gonna type it out. Edith, <laughs> near the
0: All right. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Yes. <laughs> sir, <laughs> Very
1: spooky.